Thank you. You may be seated. Wow. Sometimes uh, right before I come up here, I, I uh, offer the same prayer, it seems. Lord, don't let me get up there and mess this up. <laughs> I really feel unnecessary today. We've been in God's presence and sensed his presence with us, right? And celebrated reality. And aren't you glad we're not making this up? <laughs> this is reality. What a privilege to be here and share in it. Yesterday, I had the occasion to uh, walk through my wife's favorite French designer shop. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Target. Okay. <laughs> Target. It had been a long time since I had been in Target store. My sincere prayer is it'll be a long time before I'm in one again. Huge. And it seemed like a good portion of West Knoxville was there. Crowded. Everyone being as polite as possible with their carts, you know. And it just seemed like a maze as I was trying to make my way through there. And I ended up, of all places, I ended up in the toy department. <laughs> and so, it's huge, the toy department. So I decided to look around a little bit. You know, I'm a grandpa now. So, back in the game with toys like that. So, I was looking around to educate myself. And I couldn't believe how many toys there were. And also, I was so sad because I didn't understand most of them. I mean, what does this thing do? But as I was walking through, there it was. There it was, a timeless toy. I know it's timeless because I had it when I was a little boy. And I decided to buy it. So I bought it. Here, here it is. No, now, no, I know it looks like an egg. No, no, it's not an egg. This is a timeless educational device. <laughs> silly putty, all right? Okay. Can I get a witness for silly putty, all right? Okay, right. Silly putty. Some, some of you are going, what in the world is silly putty? Okay, it, it's so out of date, it's hip now, okay? It's in style, all right? Silly putty. And I remember uh, in this little egg, I won't get it out, back when I was a boy, you could get this, this putty that actually started as a, a scientific manufacturing process in World War II to replace rubber, which was so hard uh, to come by, was uh, part of the war effort. So, synthetic rubber. Result was this, and it hit the toy industry, and wow, you know, you could, you could bounce this stuff, you could stretch it, but what was the greatest thing to do with Silly Putty? The greatest thing to do with Silly Putty 
is on Sunday, all right? You tracking with me? The, the color comic, comics, all right? And you get your silly putty out, and you put it on that comic strip, and you'd press it down, and if you just ever so gently pulled it back, there was the comic, okay? And you could go around and show everybody what a great job you had done with that. So that was, that was the greatest thing. But then you could also use Silly Putty uh, and make, put little indentions in it with various different objects, okay? Hoping that some of the objects wouldn't stick to it, okay? But one of our favorite things to do was actually smile and press it in, up against our teeth, okay? And then we, we would show everybody. I remember having competitions. You'd set all the silly petty out with teeth and try to figure out whose, whose teeth is that? <laughs> kind of a neglected childhood, you might understand. But then there came a sad day. A sad day when I left a silly putty egg in my pant pocket. Oh yeah, you're tracking with me. And it went through the washer. And then it went through the dryer. This stuff has bonding qualities you would not imagine, okay? And it just bonded to those pair of jeans. And uh, that was the end of my silly putty days, all right? It was over. Mom said it was over. No more silly putty that she knew about. <laughs> so my silly putty days were over. And you say, where in the world is he going with this? Thank God his silly putty days are not over with. Because in reality, at our best, at our best, we're silly. <laughs> and really, when it comes to what we are in God's hands, we're really not silly putty. We are sinful putty. But in the hands of the heavenly sculptor, his sovereign, saving hand. He's able to take sinful putty like us. And as the song written by Bill and Gloria Gaither years ago says this, he's able to make something beautiful out of my life. Our series that we've been involved in is about being formed. Formed. How the Lord forms us. We're talking about spiritual formation. Spiritual formation. Two weeks ago, we considered how God forms us by his word. By the word of God, he forms us. And last week, we were challenged how God forms us molds us by prayer. It's absolutely true, prayer changes things, right? But I'll tell you what's even more amazing, prayer changes us. You cannot pray and stay the same. 
Not in the presence of God. Nobody comes into the presence of God and leaves just the same. Today, as we conclude this brief series, I want to talk with you about the other, the other thing which God uses so powerfully to form us. The word, prayer, and community. He forms us by community. Now, formed here means spiritually formed. And so we regularly refer to this as spiritual formation. Spiritual formation. I want us to take a closer look at what we mean by spiritual formation. The, the term is not in the Bible, but the concept, the truth of it, permeates the Bible. Spiritual formation. And I'd like you to turn, if you would, first of all, to the book of Romans. Would you turn to Romans? We'll come back to our text that was read just a few minutes ago, Acts chapter 2. But let's make sure we understand spiritual formation. What is spiritual formation? And so, first of all, we want to recognize that spiritual formation is our God's purpose. It's our God's purpose. If you want to know how important spiritual formation is, it is God's purpose. Well, how do we know that? Well, look at Romans chapter 8. Incredible passage, a favorite passage to many. And in Romans chapter 8, there's a, a verse that's a favorite for many in that chapter. What is that? Romans 8, 28. Okay? Let's read that. Romans 8, 28. Paul says, by the inspiration of God, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It doesn't say all things are good. All things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now note that word purpose. That God calls us, and this is the call to salvation. He calls us for a purpose. For a purpose. Now what is that purpose? Well, many times we quote Romans 8.28, and we certainly should. But the purpose is found in the next verse. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew. That is, he knew them in a personal love relationship from eternity. He also predestined. He marked them out. That's what the word means. He, he marked out before. These people on whom he set his love. For what purpose? To be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he, that is his son, Jesus, might be the firstborn. That is, he might be the leader. He might be the preeminent one in the family among many brothers. Many brothers and sisters is the idea here. Now notice, what's the purpose 
All things are working together for good to those who love God, to those who have been called for his purpose. What's the purpose? Verse 29, to conform us to the image of his son, to form us to be more like Jesus. My friend, that is God's purpose in saving you. God did not save you just to get you to heaven. Now, thank God there will be a day, right? When we will stand before him. If you are saved by God's grace, trusting in Jesus, you will. When you take your final breath here on earth, you'll take the next one in glory. And be in the presence of Jesus. But the ultimate purpose for which God saves you is not just to get you to heaven, but to make you like his son. He wants a family untold in number that through the ages will reflect his one and only and dear beloved son, the one of a kind son. That's why God saved us. We must never forget that. Now, let's move on. How many of you know that whatever God is about, and if God is about making us more like Jesus, whatever God is about, the world is against. This world is no friend of grace. This world is not your friend to help you to God. This world system is against this process of you becoming more like Jesus. And so just as we recognize God's redemption purpose, we must also understand the world's relentless pressure. Relentless pressure. Now you're there in Romans chapter 8. Turn over just a few pages in your Bible or turn over to Romans chapter 12. And again, famous and wonderfully beloved passage from the book of Romans. But I want you to see it maybe in a new light today. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Paul, having shared all of this incredible truth in chapters 1 through 11... And as it begins to challenge us as believers how to live out our salvation. He gives us this warning and challenge in verse 2 of chapter 12. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now notice, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Now, here literally is the idea. The idea from what Paul is saying, it's actually inherent in the Greek language. It doesn't come across this way in English, but it's literally this. Paul says, stop letting the world press you into its mold. 
Stop letting the world press you into its mold. Now notice, when it says do not be conformed, what Paul is literally saying here is stop. Stop letting the world form you. Stop letting the world press you into its mold. The idea here is that if we are neutral, if we're not involved, this is already happening. He's not talking about something that might happen. He says, this is happening to many of you. And you need to stop letting the world press you into its mold. Well, how do you stop that? How do you stop that? Thank God we have the answer right here. How do you stop that? Verse 2. Stop letting the world press you into its mold, but be transformed. Stop being conformed and be transformed. Start being transformed by the renewal of your mind. What is it that stops the world pressing us into its mold? What is it that's going to keep us from fitting in... (laughs) To the world's systems and values. It's by renewal. Renewal. I want you to look at this as our personal renewal priority. Our personal renewal priority. Again, verse 2. Stop being conformed to this world. And start being transformed. By the renewing, the renewal of your mind. Now that word transformed, interesting word. The word here for transformed is metamorpho. We get our word metamorphosis from this. Metamorphosis is the noun form. Be transformed. You need to be involved in a metamorphosis. What is this metamorphosis? It's a change that brings the inward outward. It's it's the true nature of something that is coming out through the outward. So that the item or the animal or the person reflects who they really are. Of course, a classic example of this is you have the caterpillar, right? But inside the caterpillar is a nature. And what is that nature? It's the nature of the butterfly. I personally think God's in nature given us that wonderful example because it so relates to us. Yeah, we might be caterpillar-like, okay? Never thought of them as the most attractive things I've ever seen. Most exciting life. But inside of that caterpillar is the nature of that butterfly. Now, friends, here's the truth. When you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, whether you felt it, quote-unquote, or not, a miracle took place. You were born again. 
that means you were given a new nature. You were given a new nature made alive just as Jesus Christ is alive. Your nature is a living nature. It's called the new person or the new man in the New Testament. That person is inside of you. That's the real you. And over a process of renewal and growth, the Lord wants you externally to become more and more like the Spirit of Christ who is within you. So that what? You are truly an image bearer of His Son. You are becoming more and more like Jesus. Yes, you still have that old you that's with you and will be with you until you're standing in the presence of the Lord glorified with a new body to serve Him forever. Won't that be awesome? But within you, the work has already been done. It's there. The new person. You're born again. And now the process of how that new person within you, by the grace of God, becomes more and more dominant in your life so that you reflect Jesus. This is what the Bible refers to as the process of sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, next week, we're going to talk about this new nature, this new reality, when we start our series again in Romans, and we'll be in Romans chapter 6. And some of you might want to be reading there. Romans chapter 6, you can read it along with that wonderful Old Testament devotional that I know you recently purchased and are using to great benefit. All right. <laughs> Sorry for that shameless plug, okay. But we'll be in Romans chapter 6, which talks about this new identity, the new you. But Paul, throughout the New Testament, is so concerned that these believers more and more become like Jesus. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, here's what Paul pleads with and prays about for the believers in Galatia. He says, My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. You're drifting away from the expression of this new birth that you have. You're drifting away from this manifestation of Jesus. And he says, it's like I am in labor again. I'm, I am in travail again until I see you being formed into the image of Christ. And so our series here, Formed, is about what? Christ formed in you. This is the process. More and more Christ being formed in you. The fruit of Jesus, which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, coming forward in your life. Now, spiritual formation is in reality Christ formation. It's what it is, Christ formation. But now it's a miracle. This is a miracle, but now listen carefully. It is a miracle in which we are not neutral. It's all of God, but we are called to participate. 
It's all of God, but we are to cooperate. It's sort of like Jesus. You know, there's one miracle that's mentioned in all four Gospels. Do y'all, anybody know what it is? Which miracle is alone mentioned in all four Gospels? The feeding of the 5,000. Why is that? Well, I think it may be because it's the most astounding, in some ways, expression of the deity of Jesus Christ. He takes just a few particles of bread and fish. He puts little fragments in the baskets of 12 disciples. And then he stands there and he just wills it to happen. He just wills that bread and fish to multiply. But where does the miracle happen? Where does it happen? It happens in the hands of the disciples. In their hands while they are handing it out. While they are handing out the bread and the fish. The miracle is happening in their hands. And friends, that's what it's like to grow into Christ-likeness. It's all of God. But we cooperate. We cooperate. We're not neutral in this. And so, how do we cooperate? Well, the way we co- cooperate is what the old Puritans used to call the means of grace. The means of grace. What are the means by which God's grace is released in our life? Well, The Word. God won't read the Bible for you. But if you read the Bible, you will find and experience God in that Bible. Prayer. God won't pray for you. Well, who would God pray to? (laughs) He won't pray for you. But you pray and the miracle is happening in you. As you pray. And then another means of grace that God uses in our lives to make us more like Jesus. And I think it is perhaps the most neglected. And we need to be aware of it. We are formed by community. By community. Now I want you to consider that word community. Community. What, what two words do you see in English from community? You see the two words what? Common unity. Common unity. A shared unity. The word for this in the New Testament, and it comes up over and over and over again, is the word koinonia. Koinonia. It means... A shared life. Koinonia is that in the Christian walk, we are not in isolation. We have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but we do not have a private relationship with Jesus Christ. We are not just individual believers. When you follow Jesus, you are joining a team, a body. You are part of a flock, a kingdom. There is a shared life that you are sharing with others. Maybe just as different as can be in so many ways. But at the core, you're sharing the life of Christ. 
That's what we are called to. And we are called to actually do in relationship with each other what is the reality spirit to spirit. That's what community is when we share life together. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran pastor who was martyred, he was killed by the direct orders of Adolf Hitler when Hitler was in his shelter deep beneath the streets of Berlin just a few days before he took his own life and came face to face with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He wanted this pastor killed who had opposed him, who had, yes, sought to be a part of seeing him removed. Here's what Bonhoeffer wrote, though, about community. He said this, Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Into the community you were called. The call was not meant for you alone. In the community of the called, you bear your cross. You struggle. You pray. You are not alone, even in death. And on the last day, you will be only one member of the great congregation of Jesus Christ. If you scorn the fellowship of the brethren, if you scorn sharing life with your brothers and sisters... You are rejecting the call of Jesus Christ. And thus your solitude can only be hurtful to you. To reject relationships, living relationships with other brothers and sisters is to reject the call of Jesus who called you to be a fellow disciple with his other disciples. And to live in solitude is not helpful, it's hurtful. Now, what is Bonhoeffer telling us? He is telling us this. The church is community. The church in its core is community. The church in its core, listen, is not a crowd. A crowd is not community. And thank God for all the crowds gathered this Lord's Day around the world. Amen? But the church in its heart is not a crowd, it's community. From the first days, as large as that church of Jerusalem was, it was a community. How large was it? Well, one day they went from 120 to 3,120. That's quite a Sunday, wouldn't you agree? Acts chapter 2. Now we, you say, finally get into your text. Don't get nervous, I know. <laughs> I heard what Doug said about Christmas. Okay. You, some of you are saying, it'll be Easter before we get out of here. <laughs> Acts 2. Listen, listen to how this first church, the church in Jerusalem, is described. Verse 46, chapter 2. It tells us, well, let's look at verse 42 first. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and fellowship. That word fellowship is koinonia. Shared life. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. Now notice, devoted. That means focused attention. Focused attention. What were they focused on? The apostles' teaching. They were focused on the word. Together. What were they focused on? Prayers. Together. Yes, individually, certainly. But prayers together. What were they focused on? Look at the word. Fellowship. Community. Together. What was forming that early, that first congregation? Devotion to the word, to prayer, and fellowship. And it was being done together. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together. Notice that word attending. It's the same word as devoted in verse 42. Same word. It's translated attending here. But it doesn't just mean hit and miss. Now and then. It means they were giving the utmost attention to be together in the temple. Huge gatherings as they listened to the apostles teaching the word of God in those outer courts of the temple. And then they were also not just in the temple, but they were in homes breaking bread together. And they were receiving their food being shared together with gladness and generous hearts. Verse 47, they were praising God and having favor with all the people, there was power upon them. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That is the description. And I believe it's also the prescription of what a church is really to be. What, what it means that we are not just a crowd who gathers. Yes, we're not in the temple, but we're gathered listening to the apostles' doctrine, not the apostles. There's no apostolic succession, but praise God, we have apostolic possession of the faith once and all for all delivered to the saints. And so we're listening to the apostles' doctrine as it's being shared in various ways. And we're gathering, we're be gathering together in prayer, in fellowship, sharing life together. This is the church as a community. So the church is a community. It's a community through Christ. It's a common unity. The church is a community through Christ. It's a community around the word gathers around the word the church is a community in prayer and the church is a community on mission Christ's mission that's what the church is that is what the church is to be whether that is yours in experience or not this is what the Lord's goal is for his church a community shared life through Christ. 
a community shared, shared life around the word. A community shared life in prayer for one another. And a community on mission. Going out to serve and share the love and message of Jesus. A community on mission. And to me, brothers and sisters, I think perhaps that is one of the most misunderstood concepts of the Christian church. The Christian community. That we are to be a community that's on mission. Read your Bible. Never does the Lord anywhere in the New Testament tell lost people to come to church. Never. He tells the church to do what? To go to the lost people. To go out and to bear witness of Jesus. <laughs> We're on mission. Two expressions of this, and I just mentioned them. Actually, I don't think I'll have you turn there. But Acts chapter 11, mark down this reference, verses 19 to 20. It talks about how the early church went Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. But there came a point where they only wanted to go to the Jewish people. They're all Jewish. And they only want to go to Jewish people. But then it says in chapter 11 of Acts. That there were some of them. There were some of them. Who in Antioch. Started sharing the message of the Jewish Messiah. With Gentiles. And they believed. And for the first time, there was this community now, not just of Jewish believers in Jesus, but there is a community of Jewish people and Gentile people believing in Jesus. Now, can you imagine what a scene that must have been? Oh, that's not my kind of songs. What do you mean? That's a great song. Uh, we don't dress like that. What's wrong the way I'm dressed? Uh, you, you need to let your hair grow in ringlets. I'm not doing that, man. Mm-mm. All these things. But guess what? That's not what happened. They loved each other. As radically different as they were. Because they had a community, a bond in Jesus. And people took note of them. And had to give a name to them. And said, this is that Christ group. And the believers were first called Christians in Antioch. Why? Something's happening the world's never seen before. Jewish people, Gentile people, who have generations of hatred, love each other, gather at the feet of the Anointed One, the Christ, and worship Him. Wow. Going outside. <laughs> I was, oh, I'm telling you, there's only maybe two people happier than me at the baptism this morning. One, Joe. <laughs> Secondly, his wife, but me. How happy, thankful. And I thought about the men's group, the community of men that 
I'm blessed to gather with on Tuesday morning and have done this. And it's been several different groups. Groups have started. How Joe, he was sharing recently how he's now started driving Uber (laughs) as a part-time job. And he feels like it's a call. And when he picks someone up, see if he can talk to him about the Lord. And while he's sharing that across the room, my friend Mike goes, hey, I'm doing the same thing. And Mike starts talking about he's driving Uber and people get in his Uber and he looks for opportunities, talk to him about Jesus. And then while they're talking, their brother across the room, go bet. He says, well, I don't drive, but every time I get in one, I try to talk to the driver. And I said, look, Uber evangelism. (laughs) We, We got you coming and going. Awesome. And then I looked across. There's my dear brother Nelson. Dear friend in that group. Stefan. Started inviting him. Just to walk together in the neighborhood. They got to know each other. And Nelson found out about. A group of crazy men meeting in this. Whacked out church. I don't think he thought that, but might have. But he came. And it wasn't long until Nelson came to settled faith in Jesus. And he was baptized up here a number of months ago with the men's group standing around him. I'm talking joy of the community. Going to those outside taking community that that is the mission don't don't think the mission is are the pastors here preaching or going out on the on media praise god yes but you and me going wherever we go and just making friends tell them about jesus <laughs> that's it inviting them into relationship. That's community. And then also community is a way you bring the outside into community. Not just the community going outside, but you bring the outsiders into the community. Acts chapter 9. Who was the ultimate outsider in the book of Acts? Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, who has been involved in the execution of Christians and the arrest and imprisonment of Christians. And he's on his way to Damascus to keep doing it, but he has a close encounter of the divine kind. And he meets Jesus, or Jesus meets him. And by the grace of the Lord, he's radically converted. And guess what now? This guy wants to join the church. Uh Uh-uh. We know this guy. We've heard about this guy. This is is his trick to find out who we are. He's going to take down names and addresses. He's going for all of us. But there was one brother named Barnabas. His name means son of encouragement. They called him that. 
he reached out to Saul. He believed, okay, I think God's done something. God's doing something in this man's life. And he brought Saul into the fellowship and introduced him to the leaders. Now I want to ask you, do you think that was a good day for the church? One, one person brought Saul in. The ultimate outsider became one who would share the message of Jesus and he would be the ultimate expression of this inclusive man who would gather people to Jesus and his ministry. You see, community changes us. I'm closing with this. It's ongoing. The Lord never stops working on us. And just when we think we're okay, the Lord, through community with others, does some deeper work to make us more like Jesus. I was asked if I would write a blog for our church website to say a word about MLK Day. And I said I would. And I prayed about it. And I started writing. And this is what I wrote. And I want you to listen. Please listen in light of what we're talking about this morning. The power of community. Here's what I wrote. April 4th, 1968 and April 4th, 2018 are two dates separated by exactly 50 years, but both of them are indelibly etched together on my mind. On that spring day in 1968, as a 12-year-old boy, I recall watching flicker on the screen of our black and white television set the scenes of grief and rage across the nation in response to the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis, Tennessee. At that time, I knew very little about Dr. King. And honestly, what I had heard about him as interpreted by my completely white and southern culture in which my young life was formed was not very good. He was a troublemaker. He was a communist, and maybe even worse, a liberal Democrat. <laughs> yes, I did hear many Christian people say they were sad for his wife and children, but some of them also expressed that they really believed the nation was better off without him. After several years of growing up and growing into young manhood, I was converted to faith in Jesus in a church that faithfully preached the gospel and yet also firmly held to the racial view of separate but equal. After that, for six years, I was provided an amazing education and preparation for ministry from godly faculty and staff in a university 
deeply rooted and stubbornly holding to a long history of racism and bigotry. Then, following graduation, my wife and I, still in our 20s, moved to a beautiful, small, Midwestern city, Flag City, USA, as it was called. And there we served on the church staff of a congregation of the most loving, devout, lily-white, and racially clueless people you can imagine. And I was right at home. Of course, I could very confidently affirm that I was not a racist. But I was most definitely and quite contentedly ignorant of the suffering, discrimination, and injustice being experienced by fellow human beings, image bearers of my God, whose skin happened to be a few shades darker than mine. Millions of these people were also clearly, according to the Bible that I firmly believed and preached, my brothers and sisters in the family of God. Yes, I knew that. But I didn't know them. Know their history, know their stories, know their experiences, know their trials as my fellow disciples following Jesus. But eventually, all that changed. And how I thank the Lord today for that change. Early in my pastorate, faith-filled and love-motivated men of color, overcoming great discomfort to themselves, invaded my comfortable life. They were relentlessly intentional, relational, and missional in seeking community with me. I was a pastor, their pastor. But they were my shepherds. They lovingly led me to a bigger, greener pasture of greater awareness and also joyful enlightenment that God's flock is massive, multi-ethnic, and multi-colored. They... They opened my mind to recognize that the needless dividing of God's flock over color is in reality the work of the enemy. And these beloved, brave brother shepherds walked with me to the mountaintop to help me see a vision of a church which is more ravishingly beautiful and radically powerful when it is racially diverse. On the afternoon of April 4th, 2018, it was truly a mountaintop view that I shared with two of these beloved brothers in Memphis, Tennessee. We joined that day with thousands of brothers and sisters of every color Uniting in praise and worship of our one Lord and one Master, Jesus Christ. For a moment, we caught a glimpse and shared a brief experience of the dream of Dr. King. The dream which will one day be our eternal reality before the King of Kings. 
That is the dream which is his will. Here. Now. It is us. And it's on this earth. May this dream of Dr. King and the will of the King of Kings be our constant prayer and relentless pursuit. Oh Lord, this is your kingdom and your will done in heaven. Help us to devote ourselves to seeing it come and done on earth. Amen. could have thought of ever writing such a thing not many years ago. Certainly not when I had the privilege of baptizing the first African American in this church ever in its history. Not long after I came as pastor. But I thank God that there were brothers and sisters who helped me through their community see what I had not seen. It was not a rejection of the love I have for the ones who raised me, the ones who molded me, the church that brought me to Jesus, the incredible school that trained me, not a rejection, but an enlightenment and understanding of a mission that the Lord wants to be established as a reality that we love each other regardless of the color of skin. And our heart's devotion is to each other because we're all made in the image of our Heavenly Father. Community. If, if you're content where you are, watch out. The Lord will just bring community to you. And you know what? It'll be awful, and it'll be wonderful. And when we go in Jesus' name, and we reach out to people, sometimes it's awful. But when you see someone stand and read what was read this morning, and baptized in Jesus' name, it's wonderful. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Let's stand quietly. My friends, listen. It's two minutes after 12. But don't you sense that the Holy Spirit's not left the building? Have thine own way, Lord.
have thine own way. I wonder what it might be maybe has nothing to do with some of the things talked about this morning, but may, what it might be that really it's still in your heart, Lord, I want my way. You see, the secret of surrender is the beginning of conforming to the image of Jesus because Jesus was surrendered to the Father's will. And that's what brought the great joy of eternal salvation. I wonder if we, as we sing this morning, maybe there are elders here, there's members of the prayer team, maybe some would just like to come and just say, kneel and pray about something. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. To just let it go and let God do that which is good and perfect. Let's sing this to the Lord. Invite you just to Make it your prayer and then respond any way God's leading you to respond.